Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to be hearing from famed studio designer Eddie Veal, who's worked with artists to design studios such as John Lennon, George Harrison, and Pete Townsend. So stick around, grab a snack, and let's listen to our interview with Eddie Veal. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org library. And welcome back to another episode. Uh, today we are going to be uh, talking about Eddie Veal and listening to his uh, full interview that he had uh, back in 2019. Uh, and he's a really fa- like fascinating guy. He um, has had quite the career and has some really great little stories of uh, odd little run-ins here and there with some uh, some pretty big name people you might have heard of before. So he's definitely going to be sharing that in a little while. How cool is it that we have an opportunity to listen to an interview where the guy name drops people subtly but impressively of people like John Lennon and George Harrison and Pete Townsend. It's fantastic and what a wonderful guy. I hope that when this podcast is over, you feel as I do that uh, this was just such a great opportunity to listen to this insight of a man who absolutely loves what he does designing studios, being involved with uh, audio equipment, repairing audio equipment, and making a career of it. And it's just such a great delight for us to have the opportunity to share that with you guys today. And uh, as we get started, I just really want to pause and uh, give a shout out to his uh, daughter, Debs, who uh, made this possible for us to go to to England and interview him uh, back in 2019. Fantastic opportunity. So let's jump right into it. Uh, Eddie's going to be talking about music as a child growing up and how he got into working in studios. Eddie, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate Pleasure, it. Pleasure, Dan. So I would love to talk a little bit about your background and, and your love for sound and, and music. How did that develop? Did you have music in your home when you were a kid? Uh, no, we didn't. Um, I developed a passion for music uh, in my early teens, and I followed all sorts of genre from big bands through to jazz and so forth and uh, my career uh, that I mapped out was uh, in acoustics as what I wanted to do and uh, I had aspirations to work in a uh, one of the major architects offices uh, working on building acoustics. Mm. Uh, I studied acoustics and during the process of graduation, wrote to all the major architects uh, saying, please employ me. Uh, very few offered a reply. So obviously I did something wrong. Uh, and uh, I, from there, I joined a company called De Havilland Aircraft, working on aircraft noise control, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. 
I worked on the Trident aircraft on the, the interior fit out to make it more comfortable, less noisy for passengers. I had a great time there and uh, the, the reason for my change from there was that uh, they were uh, taken over by a company called Hawker Siddeley Aviation. I, where I worked with de Havilland was in Hatfield in Hertfordshire and Hawker Siddeley had a similar department at Leavesdon. I, at that time I didn't have a car and I really didn't fancy travelling to Watford to uh, a, with the prospect of change in the department so I started looking for alternative employment. I was introduced by a friend to Olympic Studios and there was a guy their engineer called uh, Terry Brown and in conversation with Terry over dinner one evening suggested that I should uh, or I might like to contact a, a recording studio called Advision located in Bond Street they were looking for a project engineer at that time I hadn't got a clue what a project engineer was I, but I called them up and uh, was invited to interview and uh, went along and had a chat with them and what they were looking for was somebody that uh, could refurbish their studios or lead the refurbishment of their studios. They had uh, music recording, film dubbing, uh, film editing, audio editing, record cutting, uh, pretty much everything to uh, uh, meet the audio film trade or business at that time. I I, I discovered a little later on that they were wise or unwise enough, depending on the point of view, to offer me a job. Uh, and I quickly discovered that uh, on the film side, their major business was television advert uh, soundtracks. There was a, at that period, uh, commercial television had only been in UK for a short while, and there was uh, good demand for. Uh, television advertising and uh, they'd got a substantial portion of that market. Uh, on the music side the studio would accommodate about 30 musicians so it wasn't huge but uh, big enough to do a lot and a lot of the material they recorded at that time was the uh, sort of breaking rock and roll and uh, loud bands uh, and one of my uh, when I joined them the, the uh, work that they wanted me to do was to refurbish the music studio uh, the standard in the industry at that time was four, four track Ampex so pretty well every studio had the same kit and uh, people used to build uh, consoles and the likes as uh, Neve was only just beginning to develop. Uh, EMI produced consoles, but mainly for themselves. Uh, they were pretty expensive. And uh, there was a chappy there called Dag Fellner, uh, who had designed a uh, new console for Advision. He'd also been uh, over to the States and uh, working with Scully, American company producing or starting to produce multi-track machines, and they were. Uh, they'd, they'd developed an 8-track 1-inch machine and uh, Dag wanted to be the uh, first in Europe to import a uh, Scully tape recorder. And uh, Kevin Hibbard, the MD, thought that was a really good idea. I think uh, as I 
started to develop an understanding of Kevin, I got the impression that his idea was that, well, if we put an 8-track in and people start using it, nobody else has got one, so they've got to come back to uh, do all their mixes. <laughs> yep, pretty cute business. I, I pretty much worked that way for, uh, well, not for long, only about six months once we got the studio up and running. Uh, because Dag uh, developed his uh, sales technique and started selling them to other studios. Uh, so the next thing that came along was uh, I met Ray Dolby, who had uh, come over to UK and was uh, peddling his uh, noise reduction system. And I, Ray offered to put a system into the studio on loan. So I went, went along and had a word with uh, Kevin and uh, explained to him that there was this noise reduction system which looked like the next big thing in the industry. Uh, Ray was prepared to loan it to us for a period, un undefined, uh, and that uh, if we recorded uh, master tapes with Dolby and nobody else has got one, again they've got to come back to the studio. So he liked that idea. So. Uh, <laughs> And a couple of months later, Ray suggested he might like to take it out. So we did a deal with Ray and it became a, an acquisition. Uh, the next thing in the studios on the film side, uh, the, the guy that uh, was uh, responsible for the film studios, Andy, Andy Whetstone, uh, explained to me that he would like the facility of push buttons on the dubbing desk, similar to a tape recorder. So you could run forward, run back fast, uh, record and so forth. Uh, that was an interesting challenge because uh, the difficulty was making the projector run backwards. Well, projectors have claws that pull the film down very quickly. so. Uh, it's the film is stationary in the uh, light for maximum time. So they had uh, Zeiss projectors. In my uh, simple mind, I thought well, I'd phone up Zeiss and see what they can do to help. And uh, so I explained, found, found somebody in uh, Zeiss in Germany that uh, knew the projectors and I explained what we wanted to do and he said, no, it does not go backwards. So I said, no, I want to make it go backwards. No, you can't make it go backwards, it's not designed to. Oh, all right then. So I then uh, contacted a, a friend of mine who's a uh, mechanical engineer and uh, we visited the studio together and I showed him the projector, explained what we wanted to do and uh, he came up with a uh, method for disconnecting the uh, claws uh, so we could run backwards. And uh, so we produced the first, uh, what we labelled, rock and roll uh, dubbing theatre. Okay. Uh, and it was about six months later, I can't remember the name, but uh, a manufacturer in the States produced a uh, reversible 35mm projector. Uh, so that was uh, good. Then they refurbished the film studio, uh, dubbing theatre, uh, and then Kevin announced that uh, he needed to move 
the premises. Uh, the lease was coming to an end and his expectation of a new lease had been shattered because the landlord had informed him that uh, they were not going to renew the lease because they wanted to redevelop the block where the shears were located. So my task then became relocation. And uh, I spent the next 18 months uh, premises searching, then going through design process, then construction, fit out, transferring all the equipment uh, and creating the studios at the new premises. I, during the latter stage of that, I was starting to be approached by a number of other studios in the business, but I'd like to go and work for them. Not sure they were offering quite the right package, but uh, Kevin preempted that because uh, we'd got most of the uh, new studios operational, and uh, Kevin, very much unlike him, uh, invited me out to lunch and uh, being just a little bit suspicious of oh, what's he up to now. And uh, Kevin was astute enough to uh, appreciate that I'd probably been approached by others and uh, he explained his point of view that uh, he was concerned that I might be uh, approached by others and thinking of leaving and they didn't want to lose my services. And he made me an offer that uh, because the amount of work for Advision was reducing and therefore I'd have spare time, uh, that if I, he was happy for me to spend two days a week on non-Advision work, three days a week on Advision work, provided I based myself at Advision. I've got an office space in there so it's very convenient. Uh, so that was my introduction to uh, freelance business. Hmm and uh, the career developed from there. At that time, I probably the following year, I, most of my freelance time was spent working in other studios. Uh, I did uh, refurbishments, up updates at uh, Trident, Lansdowne, and other London-based studios. Uh, and also had started uh, doing some work for Apple in um, Savile Row. And I was—I uh, got a phone call from Apple, uh, Neil Aspinall, the manager there, uh, to ask if I could pop into his office next time I was down there. So, dropped in to see uh, see Neil, and uh, there was John and a few other people in the office. And uh, Neil quickly explained that uh, John had bought a new home out at Ascot wanted a studio and would I like to uh, design it for him. Uh, so that, that was my introduction to uh, home, what really is home studios and uh, that became the first, really the first home studio in Europe and uh, where Imagine was recorded. I, John proved to be quite, quite an impatient guy, a very nice guy to work with but I, he liked things almost instantly, and of course, uh, studio build doesn't happen instantly. I, and uh, as soon as we got to a stage where we started turning equipment on and uh, making noise, getting sound through things to see if they worked, uh, John was in the studio, so when can I start? When can I start? And uh, 
that uh, the, on the, the program we'd got a that we originally agreed we got another couple of months before we we're going to hand it over to him. And as it transpired, it was probably about three, four weeks later, uh, we'd reached a stage where we were content with a lot of the functionality. And uh, John and I reached an agreement where we would have the studio during most of the day or up to mid-afternoon. And then John would have the studio from mid-afternoon th through the evening time. Uh, and which proved to be very useful because John would find all the problems and we'd fix them the following day. <laughs> and that developed a relationship and as he started to get into uh, his recording, uh, the lines between building the studio and recording started to blur and I'd find myself uh, starting to work with John and his engineers. Uh, extending into evening time and so forth. So as he started to get a bit more serious into the recording, uh, the process of uh, moving in and helping John with the actual recording side of Imagine was fairly seamless. Uh, that was a uh, really good and interesting time. Uh, there's a few clips on uh, films that have been, uh, were recorded at that time, which are in the public domain. Uh, and uh, one of the other guys that worked on the uh, Imagine was uh, George Harrison. And I then, as we, I guess we we're probably about halfway through uh, the recording of Imagine, or what became Imagine, it didn't have the title at that time. Uh, I was approached by George because he was uh, in the process of buying a new home, home at uh, Henley and would I be interested in building a studio for him. And there were other bits I was doing as well. Uh, so life was pretty busy at that time. And uh, so the next big project was uh, doing George's studio. You are listening to the Music History Projects podcast dedicated to our full interview with Eddie Veal. I hope you guys are enjoying that uh, first segment. You know, it occurred to us while we were listening that um, it's sort of understated, but it's an important point to bring up that Eddie's career really took place at a very critical time with um, the advancement of technology for recording studios in the 1960s and 70s in a way that he incorporated the feel and the motivation behind a lot of the musicians and keeping them in mind and making them more comfortable and making it more of an environment where they could just go in and, and spend time to be creative and explore and maybe experiment with new instruments. You know, that was all kind of a new concept at that time. And I think because Eddie really embraced that and put the musician first in his designs and his ideas, I think that led to a lot of those um, musicians coming to him and saying, hey, Eddie, um, now that you're done with this project, uh, I've always wanted to have a home studio like John Lennon and George Harrison. So I think that led to a whole other part of his career because he was so open to the concept of how can we make this environment as appealing and as uh, motivating for the musician as possible. And I do believe that was a new concept. Yeah, it's kind of hard to think about it now because so many people do home recordings. But back in the day before you could have everything at home, 
um, recording in a studio is a very interesting experience. I, I remember people uh, talking about uh, the engineers being in like lab coats and it almost being like this like weird scientific thing that you do and you only got a couple hours, so you better get it right. And so all that was changing. Um, and Eddie was giving these musicians the opportunity to really have the vibe they wanted, be in their own house, record when they wanted to be there as long as they want. Um, and it definitely changed the way people record. And now, I mean, look at home recordings. You, all you need is a laptop and (laughs) you're good to go. Yeah, he definitely, um, definitely paved the way for that and then helped kind of create that. Uh, and he also had a lot of other kind of just, uh, great nuanced skills going on. Uh, one of which he's about to talk about, which is his work with the independent broadcast authority, uh, and BBC standards, uh, working with Jay Allen and Alan McKenzie. So let's hear a little bit about his story of working with them and the process of kind of getting that up and running. There are various other studios I was involved with, but the, the next, I guess, milestone in the, the career was a, an introduction to commercial radio. Uh, the radio in the UK uh, is controlled by license that uh, is arranged by government. At that time, the controlling authority was called the Independent Broadcast Authority. They'd been established some years earlier for the introduction of commercial television. So I knew everything about television, little about radio. Uh, Because government had given them the requirement to have standards or establish and uh, police standards for advertising, quality uh, and so forth, for the quality side of broadcast they'd taken the uh, guide that the BBC had uh, created and really enshrined it that uh, their licensees were required to uh, meet various parts of the BBC code of practice. That created an awful lot of animosity in the business because it was simply a guide for the BBC so few of the BBC studios achieved the sort of standard that uh, the commercial broadcasters were expected to achieve. And uh, the first tranche of licenses that the BBC authorised totaled 19. Uh, The 14th licence that uh, the IB advertised was in the Wolverhampton area, uh, Midlands. And it's one of the smallest areas in terms of audience and quite difficult uh, from a uh, financial uh, position to... uh, Uh, make sustainable. And there were two characters uh, who were involved with that. One was uh, Jay Allen. Uh, Jay was a broadcaster from the United States. Uh, And the other one was Alan McKenzie. Uh, Alan was born a Scot. Uh, He spent a lot of time in Canada, considered himself a uh, Canadian Scot. And uh, depending which side of the Atlantic he was asked whether he was Canadian or, or uh, Scottish. Um, and he was the... Uh, he expected to be the programme controller. So Jay was... Uh, his uh, intention was MD, Managing Director, and uh, Alan, the uh, programme controller. 
they uh, put an application together with the local newspaper uh, and that was submitted to the IBA and rejected by the IBA. Under the rules, uh, the IBA had a maximum shareholding of any local uh, media, newspaper, other uh, interested entities of that type. And the newspaper, which was the star, uh, had a majority shareholding, which uh, didn't meet the rules. Uh, so it was rejected, but it was any application they had. So that went back on, onto the back burner for, for a period, and then government started coming under pressure to complete the first phase of licenses uh, so they could get on with, with the next tranche. Uh, so they re-advertised. Uh, they had at that time completed 17 of the 19 licenses, so they had this Wolverhampton and one other to uh, uh, to let in order to complete the uh, first tranche of licenses. And so they re-advertised Wolverhampton and lo and behold they got the same applicant and again it was the only one. And uh, looking at their business plan I can understand why there was no other interest because it was uh, going to be difficult to produce a great enough revenue to sustain a radio facility, particularly the way that radio at that time had to be uh, established and operated. And Jay, well Jay and Alan together had ideas for reducing costs by introducing American tech, American approach to broadcasting. Uh, broadcasters on the commercial side at that time all followed BBC practice, which meant you needed at least three persons on station at any one time to operate. So overnight, when I might be playing to the animals in the fields or whatever, uh, it was unsustainable. And uh, the IBA, when they made the application, uh, I'm told, called and advised them as to what the problems were and suggested that they seek some help. And. Uh, my recollection of my first contact was a phone call from Alan explaining what their needs were and asking if I'd be interested to help them. It sounded really interesting and challenging. So I said, well, fine, I'll come up and we'll have a meet and see what can be done. And they explained their problems. Prior to that time, I, I had no experience of commercial radio and. Uh, Alan explained to me the uh, issues that they'd identified with implementing the IBA code of practice, uh, how the difficulties they would have supporting three members of staff on site overnight, uh, issues with news which was very heavily unionised, uh, and many of the other problems of operating a, a radio operation in UK and that they were looking for somebody that could not only design their studios, but also help them with other business aspects. So again, it's an interesting little challenge. Uh, so I said, well, we, yeah, but the first thing I want to do is to go and talk to the IBA and get their side of the story. I've heard yours, but there's always two sides to pretty well any discussion, argument or whatever. So I, I made contact with uh, 
a chap in the IBA called Chris Hibbert. And uh, Chris was uh, in charge of the uh, technical uh, division of the IBA. And I went down, they, they were in uh, Winchester, southern part of the country. Went down and uh, spent a, probably the best part of half a day talking about things. And uh, we eventually got uh, talking about how, how the uh, IBA operate. Uh, what their mandate is from government, uh, what they look for, the rationale to why they did things in the way they did them. So that gave me a fairly good uh, understanding of the IBA. We then got round to talking about Wolverhampton and uh, Chris explained why the application couldn't be accepted by the IBA because of the rules within which they work. And so we talked about uh, the discussion developed around uh, what was needed in order to modify the application to make it acceptable. Uh, and that information I then took back to a discussion with Alan and Jay. And we talked about how the station could be configured, uh, what they need, needed to do to their application to make it palatable to the IBA. And uh, that probably took us the best part of a couple of weeks to reshape. Well, they resubmitted their application and uh, the IBA approved it. So they got their license. Uh, the IBA, when they issued licenses at that time, put uh, end dates on the, the license for transmission commencement. Uh, that gestation period was normally about a year from the award of license. Uh, in order to fit their framework, that was reduced to 10 months in that particular instance. It was, it was the last one of the first 19 to, to actually come on air. The IBA's rationale to that was that the IBA uh, handled all of the transmission side. Uh, so having from their uh, perspective having established the transmitter, got it all working in readiness for program material, they expected program material to be delivered, otherwise they've got an investment and standing there idle. Uh, so the IBA in their contract with the franchisee uh, put dates in when they would expect transmission material to be delivered and when the uh, transmission fee would commence. So from the operator's point of view, if, if they miss that date, it means meant that they would be paying the fee to the IBA for the provision of the services, uh, but of course not using it. The other aspect from a commercial operator's point of view is that when you start uh, broadcasting, there is a substantial run-up to that in generating local interest and so forth to develop an audience. Don't just suddenly open the doors and one day and the next day you've got an operating radio station. Uh, it's generally about a five to six month uh, period run up to that. So the operators are making commitments where not probably in five to six months time that uh, they will have established a following and also I have be able to commence broadcasting.
So there's a num number of things that have to happen to uh, make it viable. Uh, and uh, in that process, the, uh, uh, the chairman had uh, found a, a large old house on the uh, outskirts of Wolverhampton, uh, which was going to be the principal premises. Uh, we obtained planning permission to put an extension on the back, which would provide the studios. Uh, that was put in jeopardy when I visited one day and there was a, a brown dust everywhere in the house. It had developed dry rot, <laughs> so, which eats timber. Mm -hmm. uh, so that delayed the house by about uh, six weeks while that was sorted out. Uh, we didn't quite get the studios finished for the IBA. The studios were on two levels. We didn't quite get the studios finished for the IBA to do their usual checks. and. I had to go back to Chris and negotiate. We'd got the ground floor all complete, which was the broadcast side. There was also a production side, which was on the upper floor. Uh, so I had to negotiate with Chris how we would test, or how they, the IBA, would test the premises to be satisfied that the broadcast side met code of practice. Uh, and uh, that really concluded with uh, agreement that uh, Chris would don some heavy boots. We would put uh, some level meters in the studios. Chris would go tramping around and provided it didn't disturb the, uh, or didn't register on the meters, that uh, he would be content. Uh, and that was successful. So Beacon actually, despite the issues we had, started broadcast, launched on the right day at the right time. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that led on to other things. More recently in my career, the last few years, we've been doing quite a lot in uh, the education sector. So once again, you are listening to Eddie Veal on the Music History Project. Such great stuff here. Um, and I really want to stress the importance of checking out the video that we have that accompanies this interview. We have the full interview posted on our website. You can head over to namnamm.org slash library, search for Eddie Veal, and it will pop up for you. Now we're going to jump back into the interview. Eddie's going to be talking about some more recent projects um, and his impressions of Bob Moog. Over the years, I been approached several times about uh, creating studios in education and none of them have come to fruition because my approach ha has always been if you're creating something for students to learn it needs to be at the forefront of technology because they're going to be there for two or three years and if the equipment is not, when they start, is not at the forefront, by the time they complete their course, it's going to be out of date. So how can you, this university, deliver a course that you're going to be having, have students that are going to be walking out the door with their uh, degree, who are not in possession of information about the latest technology and methodology in their sector, whether it's music recording, whether it's film, video, or whatever. Mm. And up until the first project I had, I, 
the offers that I'd made in response to inquiries were not taken up because the establishment didn't have enough money. My first project was with Falmouth University. They had negotiated a, a substantial fund from the European Fund to build a new block on their campus down in Falmouth. And uh, fortunately they had the money. Uh, that was interesting because we actually create. They had in the, in the process to get one of the requirements of the uh, European Fund was proof of popularity in terms of number of, number of students. Uh, being rather out on the edge of the UK, they were having difficulty, and they for the music side because it wasn't just a, a music recording; it was music performance. Uh, generally arts performance and so forth, in order to get bolster the number of students that they could prove on the recording side, uh, they approached uh, Dartington College of Arts, who had been a client of mine for a number of years, uh, to join them so that they could uh, produce the evidence that they would have enough students to qualify for the, uh, the grant. Uh, it transpired that uh, in the process of joining uh, Falmouth, uh, that they a stipulation they put into the contract was that they would appoint the consultant for the design of the studios. So when it came to the appropriate time, my telephone rang and uh, I was explained as to uh, what it was and could I come down to Falmouth and take a brief. Uh, that was very pleasant because it meant that uh, there was the funds available and we were actually able to do a, a really good job for them. And uh, other universities visited and uh, our next project was then with uh, Middlesex University. Uh, they were doing a major development on their campus. They wanted uh, radio, uh, training, radio training studios. They wanted an experimental music studio. Uh, uh, video editing and other facilities. So, uh, again, they've got the money. Uh, then from there, that developed into the University of West London, uh, which also housed the uh, London School of Music. It was the uh, music school within the university for uh, engineers and uh, uh, perf recording performance. And uh, they wanted uh, some additional studios, which uh, again, they'd got the money. Uh, then they decided, they, they had a small radio uh, presenter training program, uh, which they wanted to raise to degree level. And they needed some radio studios for that. And uh, we got engaged in conversation and Again, they'd got the money to do that. We got some really nice, a couple of nice, really nice radio stations that uh, people in the industry at that time were envious of. Uh, so that's my aspirations throughout my career has always been to develop a good quality and facilities that work for the people using them so that uh, the process 
is as transparent as possible to encourage the art of music, video, film, whatever they're doing, that the equipment or technology should not get in the way of the art. Now that, to me, is paramount. Going back to um, to George Harrison, was the, did you introduce the, the Moog to the UK? I introduced Moog to UK, um, well, not entirely. Uh, my contact with, with Moog, uh, George, when he was over in, in the US, uh, purchased a Moog 3P, which was, was the one in the three cases and the mm. extra one with the keyboard and stuff, and brought it back to the UK. Uh, he took it along to EMI Studios, Abbey Road, uh, when uh, one of the songs they were recording was Here Comes the Sun. And during that recording, it developed a fault. Uh, the fault was that the keyboard, uh, when you played a note, it didn't sustain. It had just gone down to the, uh, the bottom of the register. And I'd been talking with, with uh, Bob uh, prior to that, uh, so I was interested in, because I'd, I'd worked with a couple of producers in the UK uh, with their with electronic music studios, uh, that they did advertising jingles, they made uh, advertising jingles and the likes. They didn't use Moog, they, they did various uh, bits, probably much based on the BBC's electronic workshop. Uh, which is a collection of oscillators and other toys to uh, generate uh, unusual sounds. And uh, Bob called me and said we got a call from Abbey Road to say that, uh, that there was a, a one of his three Ps there with a problem. Would I go and have a look at it? Of course I will, Bob. You know, no problem. So I went to the, the studio and uh, there was the Beatles recording. Uh, so I had a look at the uh, uh, machine, see the, the, the mode to see what the problem was. And uh, there's a little FET in it that had failed, didn't have one with me, so I went back the following day and fixed it. I, from there, I, I came to an arrangement with Bob where we would uh, handle any repairs and so forth in UK because they were starting to sell other uh, synthesizers into UK. And also we would uh, provide a uh, sales function for him. Uh, and we had a good relationship for, well, really I guess up until Bob's demise. Uh, but the the way the industry developed, uh, sales after about a year uh, weren't developing because uh, so many were buying equipment over in the States and bringing it over to UK, uh, where the view was they could get round import duties and uh, cost of carriage and so forth. So it was uh, musicians who were the main people to buy the equipment. Uh, considered they could get it cheaper in the States, uh, so a lot was uh, imported. So a lot of inquiries we got was how do we convert this to run on UK power, uh, which was pretty straightforward. Uh, so, and then I was over at, uh, in, you know, I was in New York at uh, an AES meeting, and I met uh, David Friend, who uh, 
was the uh, CEO of Arp Synthesizers. And uh, David approached me about uh, helping Opt to establish over here. I, I considered who the local or who, who were the appropriate or who would be an appropriate outlet in the UK to represent Arp. And one of the, the major uh, outlets at that time was FWO Bausch. Uh, they represented Neumann and EMT, uh, Revox. Uh, and others in the, the professional sector. Uh, so I was instrumental in introducing uh, them to ARP and ARP to them. Uh, Bausch uh, retained my services for a period to assist them with uh, a tours that they took on to uh, promote the ARP. I, and so, so I sort of got a foot in both camps at that time. Uh, I tried to avoid conflicts between the two. Uh, and that was, so I, I really became well recognised for uh, synthesizers, not synthesizer music, but the actual uh, devices. Uh, and I uh, spent many happy hours fixing them. <laughs> uh, yeah. What's your impression of Bob? I technically very competent. I nice guy socially. I, well, I found him so anyway. I'm not <laughs> sure about others. Um, yeah, he, he was uh, yeah pretty astute business person, and I think if somebody, I got the impression that uh, if somebody on the business side didn't quite do things the way he wanted them done, that uh, he might just sideline them. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I, I had an enjoyable relationship with him. Yeah, I was going to ask you, speaking of impressions of people, in, any thoughts about uh, working with George Harrison? I mean, you created... Oh, George, George was a lovely guy to work with. Um, he, uh, very practical. I, George's background was, I mean, when he left school, he went into electrical engineering. Uh, and he trained as an electrician. Uh, and it was the uh, his relationship with other members and the emergence of the Beatles as a group at that time. Uh, they decided that uh, he preferred to be playing with a band rather, rather than uh, wiring houses or whatever he did. Uh, so he got a very practical background and uh, he was very easy to talk to. In terms of his studio, he'd got very clear ideas from, he, he, he had thought a great deal beforehand about what sort of studio he would want because having seen uh, John's studio put together he started thinking I imagine that he started thinking about uh, well if, if I have a studio of my own what would I want it to, to look like and uh, I think probably the most innovative aspect of the studio at that time was the type of console he wanted. Because again, consoles were still de purpose designed. It hadn't, Neve were, were developing, uh, there were others starting to come uh, onto the market uh, with the Trident and other consoles. But, and uh, George's wish, he, he, always, he expressed his thoughts that during a recording uh, process, that the engineer got in his way. 
uh, because he he had some difficulty explaining because because he was a, a practical person with a lack of skill in the recording side that he didn't have good communication with recording engineers to be able to explain to them what he wanted. Uh, and he felt that uh, if he had control, he could do things better, mm. rightly or wrongly. Uh, so for the console for his studio, he wanted to do two parts. He wanted the producer's bit where, that he would operate and the engineer's bit that the recording engineer would operate. So the recording engineer could handle all the incoming signals from the microphones, get all the levels right, get all the EQ right, and, and do all the level control. And then on the producer's side, uh, he could do simulated mixing and so forth, uh, so that he could listen to how tracks fitted together and also make adjustments to EQ that one would do in the uh, uh, mixing process. Uh, so it was quite a... Uh, quite a novel approach. Uh, at that time, when we designed George's studio, the technology was 16-track. Uh, we could see 32-track on the horizon. Also, Quad was briefly with us at that time. So the, the concept for the studio was 16-track with a pros prospect of 2024, 20, but we didn't know how we were going to do that. Uh, and uh, possibly 48-track, also quad. So we designed the, the, the studio for quad. The console was all designed for quad mixing. Uh, it was a 48-fader console, so two groups of 24. Uh, initially, it was only a 16-track uh, machine, but we, we created it to easily build it out to 24. We could see that happening quite quickly from what was going on in the industry. Uh, and 16-track in that studio only survived about eight months uh, before it was uh, upgraded to uh, 24. Uh, and then probably two, three, three years on, it was uh, upgraded again to 48-track, uh, where two 16-tracks were, uh, sorry, two 24-tracks were uh, synchronized together. Uh, it was a little slow going 48 track because the synchronized, there was already one synchronizer at that time and it was in its emphasis, it wasn't reliable enough. Uh, it's not, I wasn't prepared to put it into George's studio where I know that he would want to run the machines without me there for me just to get a phone call to say, how do I do this or it's not running. Uh, so it needed to be robust enough and reliable enough that I could put it in and then I'd have the confidence that if George hit the button that it worked. Uh, and that, I think, was what developed. That's fairly on. I mean, I'm talking about 70, 75, 76 period. Uh, and that was part of the philosophy that I developed at that time for home studios was uh, robustness and reliability. Uh, that, well, we designed and provided had to be reliable and robust enough that whatever the owner user did, they didn't break too easily. Because one thing's for sure, yes, it is today, that the users 
not intentionally, but the way things can be done can easily break things. Uh, that's a whole different ballpark today with computers that they break without any intention at all. Uh, but so uh, that was the uh, what one of the uh, several principles that we designed studios on was. Uh, so I, th I think probably summarising what, what were our aspirations in studios for the benefit of the uh, client was uh, transparency, robustness, and reliability, uh, as well as the quality of sound. So th those those were the four pillars of uh, principle that we worked with. Wow, this is so fun, you guys. Eddie Veal uh, from his NAM Oral History interview here on the uh, Music History Project podcast. And I'm just really thrilled about uh, hearing these great stories and this wonderful insight. You know, most of us, including all three of us, have not met any of the Beatles. Um, hey, wait, no, we did meet and interview Pete Best, so that's got to count. Um, but, you know, growing up listening to their music and at being such a part, I mean, talk about the fabric of our lives. I mean, this group really changed everything, as we all know. And what's neat is it continues to be a source of interest. So even the small little details about what the guys were like and what did they do when they weren't together and what was their home studios like? What was their vision for the music that they wanted to do on their own? And what did they do on their downtime? I mean, all of that stuff, every little bit of it seems to be something that we lap up and I certainly do. So uh, what, what a great thrill it is to hear a little bit uh, different information than we normally hear. And speaking of that, um, Ashley often teases me that towards the end of every interview, I ask a out of left field question, which is my opportunity to do exactly that. So I often do. So I didn't disappoint her this time, did I, Ashley? Absolutely not. Uh, you guys will have to wait until towards the very end of this segment to hear his uh, fantastic question. It's, it's, I think, you know, it's a very interesting question and something that everyone needs to know. Uh, along with Dan's great uh, question coming up here, you are also about to hear a great story about John Lennon and uh, Eddie cutting the tape for a John Lennon recording and what happened with that. Uh, it's quite a great story. So let's get into this, this last segment with Eddie Veal. Your daughter wanted to make sure that I also asked you about um, some story re relating to John and uh, cutting a tape. Oh dear. <laughs> well, that's, um, that's not in the public domain. <laughs> uh, I suppose, yeah, all right, I can talk about that. Um, during the latter stages of uh, the recording of, of Imagine, uh, we got to the stage where the uh, the master tape was being compiled and uh, working through uh, with John and Phil, uh, we marked up a few edits on it and uh, they decided that they'd got sufficient uh, confidence in me that they could go and have dinner one evening and leave me to edit up the, and compile the uh, master tape and uh, one was just taking a small segment out of the tape because it wasn't quite tight enough and uh, I'd done a number of edits on it and they were all fine and I guess I probably uh, just became a bit overconfident 
and I, that, I'd got two marks on the tape and I decided that that mark was the right one and I cut it and I got a nice little pile of uh, pieces of tape on the floor and this little section of tape which is probably only about an inch two and a half centimeters long just dropped on the floor with everything else completed the edit just played it and I sort of oh dear wasn't quite right so the next thing was to find this little piece of tape that I dropped on the floor I so I carefully and there were, were several that were of similar size so then for the next uh, probably 15 minutes put each piece back in to see, find the right piece of tape and then re-edited it and I just finished when the guys came back everything okay Ed? no problem <laughs> <laughs> but that was a yeah if, if that had disappeared it would uh, would have been a bit of a challenge because the, the edit was quite noticeable so uh, yeah I recovered from that one so uh, that was uh, yeah, they'd, they'd done all this work. There was uh, John and Phil Spector sort of uh, taking great interest in what I was doing, and so I was under the spotlight there. <laughs> that was probably one of the most nerve-wracking. It became a nerve-wracking situation when I realised what I'd done wrong. Uh, but fortunately, I was able to uh, uh, resolve it without too much difficulty. And no one was any of the wiser until you Nobody was any of the wiser until this point in time, <laughs> many years on. <laughs> the first time of... <laughs> so it's now in the public domain. <laughs> Very interesting. Very cool. Did you have something that you... No, I just wanted to know, I wanted to know if you confessed. But <laughs> no, I never confessed that way. Well, wasn't, well you know, I, afterwards there was really nothing to confess. Uh, and uh, I mean, there's a number of things which I'm sure everybody does during their life, uh, where at the time you think, "Oh, I shouldn't have done that," but then you put it right. So, you know, other than the novelty of sort of telling somebody that you know you did this wrong, um, and I, I guess that's not. I mean, there's, there's lots of things. I'm human. There's lots of things I've done r wrong during my life, and I firmly believe, you know, if, if if you're doing things, there is high probability you're going to do something wrong. I, I think the, the important thing is that you're able to recognise when you've done something wrong and correct it. Yes. And if you correct it, then fine, something went wrong, but hey, there was no consequence. Mm. So it's, it's not a problem. Yeah, so if I try to rehearse everything that I've done wrong throughout my life, <laughs> it would be a pretty large catalogue, <laughs> as I'm sure it would be with most people. Mm, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Yeah, there's so many things that you've done. You know, one of the things I'm sort of curious about is, um, did you did you apply any of the knowledge that you learned in reducing sound for aircraft in uh, studio work? Is no, it's re really quite different uh, because the aircraft noise uh, was ma mainly the uh, jet engines. Uh, at, at that stage, I. Uh, uh, the jet noise, well it was a combination of jet noise and wind noise, air noise, uh, but predominantly it was jet noise which, which were quite high frequency. Uh, more modern uh, engines which, which are fan bypass, you've got these big fans on the front, uh, completely different character. Mm. Uh, a lot, lot more mid-band noise, quite different. In studios uh, you're dealing with <laughs> the entire spectrum of sound, it's not a, a, a narrow 
band. Mm. Uh, so in order to, uh, I think it's useful to have an understanding of musical architecture, where if we go back to our ancestors, um, musical instruments, somebody created a music, musical instrument, they, I suspect they would take it round to different venues and see where it sounds best. And then that would become, over a period of time, recognised as the type of environment that you need for this instrument. Take the clavichord or you know, a brass instrument, whatever. And we know jolly well that in instruments, whatever they are, with their string, brass or whatever, perform better in some environments than in others. In the 70s, a number of studios were designed for a particular genre of music. Uh, and there were several studios that I designed for rock music, uh, where the client wanted a studio that produced a, a very hard sound, uh, so that uh, the musicians playing, they would get a very presency hard sound to it. And then there were other studios where they would be doing more classical work, brass, violin, so they would want a more open, uh, ethereal sound to it. Uh, and I guess that word, looking back on uh, my work, was quite an interesting learning period of, of how to start approaching the architecture of studios to achieve what was wanted sound-wise. Most interesting client that I worked with uh, was Gus Dudgeon. Oh, the mill. Yeah. Uh, Gus produced uh, Elton John's work. Uh, Gus had, in his work, identified a particular studio where he liked recording. The ambience of the actual studio uh, was great. He didn't like the control room too much, so having recorded the stuff, he would take it to another studio where he'd do overdubs and mixing. And uh, for his studio, he wanted the characteristics in the studio of the studio like recording in, and for the control room, uh, the control room he liked recording in. Which was interesting because, like, I hadn't done that before. And I knew nobody that had done it before, so there was, whilst I spoke to other uh, people in the in industry, they were sort of say, you want to do what? Um, fortunately, looking back, it was very fortunate. Uh, Brun & Kerr, one of the major instrument manufacturers, I had uh, just started to introduce to the market their uh, Phosphoria Transform Analyzer, uh, an analyzer that was capable of doing detailed analysis uh, and computer-driven, which was quite innovative. And I worked quite closely with uh, Brunner Kerr on uh, a number of things and bought lots of their kit. Uh, they were kind enough to loan it to me. Uh, for a period, and I was able to measure the, uh, uh, the environment of the studio and control room, and from that start to gain an understanding of the, the acoustic uh, characteristics and qualities that Gus related to. So, what, how the characteristics, the acoustic characteristics, related to what Gus was telling me he liked about it, and it was that association uh, that I was then able to use to start designing the space. Mm. 
because the shape and size of the mill was completely different, both studio and control room, to the rooms that he worked, worked in. Uh, Phil Dunn was his engineer at that time, and uh, I still rec recall, and it was when I invited Gus and Phil in that we'd got things, got the studio to a stage that we were, and particularly the control room, we got the control room to a stage where we were content with uh, that it was commissioned, and we could invite Gus in to listen and give us a, an assessment. And uh, Gus and Phil spent probably 20 minutes, half an hour, listening to different things in the control room. And when they'd finished, said, great, where's the pub? Let's go down the pub. Brilliant job, Ed. It's just what we wanted. And uh, about a few days later, they did some recording in the studio. And, and Gus said, yeah, it's exactly what we wanted. Thank you. Uh, but that was a lot of hard work to do that. Uh, fortunately, uh, Gus was keen to get it done, but he didn't let time uh, prejudice what we were doing. Uh, if we said, well, we, we need another fortnight or whatever, uh, he would so, so sound a bit disappointed, but you know, accept that we needed more time in order to get it right. Mm. Uh, and the uh, end result was we g gave Phil and uh, Gus in particular exactly what they wanted. And that really was the uh, uh, was the establishment of our ability to actually design spaces to meet quite precisely what the uh, client wanted. Uh, from that, we'd learned an awful lot through that process. Uh, we could actually start to design spaces to reflect a particular acoustic uh, or whatever the, the client wanted. Uh, that has been very good for us. Um, an example of that ability was uh, fairly recently, a couple of years back, University of West London. Uh, they'd got a, an architect designed hall uh, which was for performance. Uh, and uh, it had bleacher seating. So it had a, a, an audience number of about 600. Uh, they intended to use it for musical and uh, uh, theatrical productions, but it sounded pretty awful. Uh, and uh, they invited me to uh, have a look at it, and I went and had a look, and it was pretty awful. Uh, one side wall uh, was uh, movable partitioning, so it could be opened up to an adjoining area. Mm. Uh, it was. It was a really difficult area, and uh, we, having thought long and hard about it, I decided that the approach needed to be minimal, and uh, we came up with a scheme for it, uh, which I confess we weren't entirely confident about uh, that we would achieve the goal because there's nothing we could do with the movable wall. Uh, so we were limited to uh, effectively three walls and the back wall because that was mainly uh, obstructed with bleacher seating. There was not much. So we've essentially had two walls and not much of a ceiling to do anything with. Mm. Uh, so we had had to look at some fairly high technology uh, forms of construction to get some acoustic values. Uh, I was 
quite amazed afterwards when they, when we handed it over to them and uh, they started to use it. And they said, brilliant for performance. The students love it. Uh, good communication with, with the audience. The audience could hear what's going on. And then they had, um, I, it was one of the major orchestras in there. And uh, I'm trying to think of the, uh, the name of it and the conductor. But the conductor were braved about it. He, he thought it was one of the best places they'd of that type they'd performed in. Yeah, not, yeah, it wasn't a concert hall. It was a performance hall in, in education. And he was absolutely uh, amazed by it. That's fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, so we've done some interesting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> a, few in a few challenges, a few sort of uh, chair clutching uh, incidents. <laughs> I think you're the only person I can ask this question to, and that is, Eddie, what are the challenges of designing a studio, a recording studio on a boat? Um, probably seasickness, <laughs> <laughs> or motion sickness. <laughs> um, well, the challenges are, 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 are not that difficult because I, I, I uh, did exactly that for Pete Townsend. Uh, and that's boats, still on the water, still a recording studio. Uh, last time, well, it must be a couple of years ago, is uh, moored in um, St Anne's Dock uh, and they're still operating. Uh, the challenges are lack of height, uh, a bit of crampness, but then yeah, one starts, one reverts to how do you design a mobile studio? Uh, you've got limitations on vehicle size and so forth. And it comes, comes down to that again. One of the principles that we have for the design of studios, whether in uh, mobile situations, boats, grandiose uh, premises, is the truth of sound in the control room. Uh, and what are the principles there that I how the sound is presented to the listener has to be true, it has to be transparent, and without, without stress. I, one thing I learned very early on, probably back in the, the, towards the end of the 70s, was that if you're able to create an environment in a control room, which is, I guess, really easy listening, uh, where the environment feels comfortable, it's not distracting, doesn't introduce stress, and you start to listen that what you hear is not influenced by the room. Uh, what you hear is no different to uh, the listening position. is very, very similar to going and putting ear close to the monitor speakers. Uh, but in that situation, what you hear in the recording process and what you do with equalization, what you do with reverb, uh, mic positioning, that you hear all the nuances. And you're able to actually, the engineer is actually able to craft their work to the best of their ability. Uh, there's something that sounds, doesn't sound right, the engineer very quickly is able to identify whether it's an issue with the microphone, an issue with positioning the microphone, or whether they need to tweak a knob. 
uh, so that they can get the best result for what they're doing. And that's a combination of the room, environment, the layout, positioning of speakers and so forth. It used to be at that time that uh, we were fairly dictatorial about the, uh, the layout of the room, positioning of the loudspeakers and so forth. We've become a bit relaxed uh, in more recent times as we've refined the design process so we're not, we don't need to be quite so uh, uh, specific. I would have thought the um, elimination of water sloshing on a boat might be a challenge. <laughs> it could be a challenge during the recording process, unless, of course, you want mu you're doing water music and you want the background. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great fun, Eddie. Thank you so much for taking such time for us. My pleasure. So there you go. There is my question, my twisted question at the end there about uh, creating a, a studio on a boat. Um, I'm glad I didn't disappoint you, Ashley, in asking at least one weird question. Um, what a wonderful opportunity. Uh, in conclusion of this uh, podcast, a uh, shout out to Debs. Uh, Eddie's daughter and Eddie for uh, making this possible. And also a reminder to all you listeners out there, you know, that interview was only made possible because we had a connection. And so if you have a connection to somebody that you feel that we should be interviewing, by all means, give us an email and let us know. If we haven't interviewed them and we can, we're going to try. So we'll put it on our list. Please let us know. And I'll piggyback off Dan's thought just a little bit in saying it's not just about the big stars. The people that are behind the scenes are so important as well. Just like Eddie, who designed all these studios, all of this music wouldn't have been possible without the studio. So I think that that's something we can all glean from this interview. The guys behind the scenes are just as important as the guys that you see, guys and girls that you see on stage. Yeah, definitely. And just, you know, they... They help fill in those little stories that maybe we don't hear all the time, uh, like with John Lennon or, you know, George Harrison or something like that, or just, you know, fun, crazy stuff about building a studio on a boat. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> uh, so with that, you guys will hear from us in two weeks and we'll talk then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org.